Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, you are listening to Freight 360. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back for episode 62 of Freight 360. Ben, it's another great day here, and we are joined by special guest Kevin Hill from Freight Waves. Gentlemen, good morning. It's good to have you both on here. Good morning. morning. Excited. Great to be on here with you guys. Absolutely. Our, pre- our pleasure. Our pleasure. So, so real quick, Kevin, you are, uh, you've been with Freight Waves for a couple of years now, and also you are the founder of CarrierList.com um, and host of the Put That Coffee Down show that you have over there at Freight Waves. So um, if you don't mind, just for, for anyone who's listening that, that hasn't, uh, you know, isn't too familiar with your show or with your company, um, give us a little bit of a, a rundown on CarrierList.com, also the, the Put That Coffee Down show. What, what, uh, what's the content? What's the discussion on? Uh, give us a little bit of an intro there, if you don't mind. Sure. Thank you very much, Nate. I, again, it's, it's great to be here with you today. Uh, yeah, so I was a freight broker in a previous life. Um, I started about 2011, 2012. I did that for a few years and uh, came across an idea that I could brand and, and take out and take, you know, market. And, and it was a data set of, of carrier profiles. So, uh, you know, whenever you're looking for capacity, you can't find capacity. Uh, you don't really have the contacts to go out and build those relationships. I have a, a lead list that I've built over the last four or five years since 2016, which is carrierless. And we, we call, have a call center now. And what we do is we call the FMCSA database and get uh, talk, talk to carriers, talk to dispatch, get their preferred lanes, trailer types, uh, anything interesting about them, uh, certainly their name. So, it's kind of business leads on the carrier side to where you can uh, put in a lane mode, uh, search for that and get a list of carriers that you can call and prospect and, and find capacity, find rate or get rates, get quotes and things like that. So I was working on that out doing my content marketing, owning my niche and, uh, and along came Freight Waves and Craig Fuller and uh, met with, met up with them in the early days of Freight Waves and kind of did some research collaboration I was out doing a lot of research as part of my, my content marketing. And, uh, and when was it was April 2019, uh, he invited me to come out to Chattanooga, Tennessee and run research. He's going to, he wanted to build a research team. So I came out here and started doing that. And at that time I got out here, we, he decided to go into TV and podcasting and Juner came in about three days after I did. And we've been podcasting and doing video ever since. And that led to earlier this year, uh, Put That Coffee Down, which is a freight sales show uh, dedicated to talking about, about sales, content marketing, uh, personal improvement, uh, just really all about the, um, the sales process, whether you're a freight broker or carrier sales rep or you're not even in freight. We, uh, we talk about a lot of things that are just fundamental sales and marketing. And that's, that's awesome. A little bit about me. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, for, for our listeners, we have similar content. So if you haven't checked out Kevin's show, check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes, but when, um, when do your shows release? Are they live? Are they pre-recorded? How does that look for people that want to listen in? Yeah, they're, they're live. And so they're live every Wednesday at 12 PM Eastern time on LinkedIn or Freight Waves TV or tv.freightwaves.com. So we do that. We do a, uh, a heavy interactive show. So if you're watching on LinkedIn, you know, people are commenting, we're reading off the comments and, and we're engaging uh, with the audience. And then it goes into Freightcats. Uh, that's uh, Freight Waves podcast channel uh, under Put That Coffee Down. And we we always post it up on the website too. It's on demand on tv.freightwaves.com. And uh, again, it's a sell shows for, for freight and, uh, and and certainly we're big fans of Freight 360 as well. I, I listen to, to you guys' podcasts quite quite often, and you know there's a lot of space out for for sales. I, I can never get enough sales information myself. Agreed, agreed. Uh, well, that's awesome. And I will say one thing I noticed about Freight Waves and with Freight Waves TV is you guys have uh, not just a mobile app, but there's also smart TV apps. And I found this on like my Roku TV, my Apple TV. That is awesome. I mean, just having access to great content in so many different 
uh, ways to, to listen to it and to view it. I think that's amazing. So you guys are doing great stuff and we're, we're honored to have you on here today. So thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Um, cool. All right. So let's get into, obviously today's episode, you know, we kind of, you kind of hinted at it. We're going to talk about having a niche in brokerage. It's, it's obviously a, a fairly common question that we get, at least on our show. And I've, I've seen it around the industry as well with other folks is how do I get started? Should I pick a certain niche? Is there some kind of something that I'm not doing that I should be doing? And then we can kind of talk about even a little bit about how to market yourself and how to connect within that industry or that niche that you're picking. So, uh, but first we have to do our, our obvious sports discussion. It's Masters week, man. Yeah. I was like, yeah, can't be jumping over that. Well, Ben, I mean, honestly, before we even talk Masters, <laughs> right? The Pittsburgh Steelers are still it. the only Look undefeated team. That, those are your boys out there. Even though the, the struggling Dallas Cowboys almost, almost gave them an upset on Sunday. It was funny. Tons of text messages with all my family and brethren up in Pittsburgh. It did not look good in the first few quarters of the game, but you know, they, they held out. They definitely kept it, kept it an interesting game to watch. Yeah. I did see big Ben's on the uh, COVID IR for having some kind of close contact with somebody. He didn't test positive himself, but I do believe he's supposed to be able to play coming into the next week. To be. That was all I was listening to Pittsburgh radio all this morning on that. And it said he was sitting next to somebody that had tested positive on the trip last week. Can't remember who it was, but when they, they got into the discussion, it made a lot of sense was they test the player Sunday morning, but they don't get the results until Sunday night and sometimes Monday morning. Okay. So there's clearly a loophole in the NFL's testing system where maybe they should be testing them at least maybe Saturday night. So they know before I think they are, though. Play? I think they added the game day test recently in addition to what they were doing before. Mm. So, I don't so, know. I'm, I'm not 100% positive. Either way, that was the scuttlebutt in Pittsburgh. Everyone was like, how in the world you got him sitting next to the quarterback? Of anybody on the bus that you don't want him next to, it's the quarterback, right? Yeah. Put him in the bubble. Put him somewhere, right? Yep. So, in other NFL news, my Buffalo Bills had a, a great game to upset Seattle Seahawks. And – just sitting at seven and two now. So it's, it's looking good. You know, here in, in the, the, the vibe in Western New York is a great one. So it's a, it's a, it's a good time to be a Bills fan after, you know, about 20 years of it being rough. Kevin, who's your, who's your football team? Are you, are you an NFL guy at all? I, I, I am. And I grew up a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So uh, it, it's been a rough, uh, it's been a rough 20 years myself as <laughs> well. Right. I mean, maybe not as rough as the Bills, but it's just been a disaster with Jerry Jones. I just wish Jerry would just let the football people run football. Yeah. Uh, but right now I'm, I'm watching more of the Browns and the, the Cardinals because former OU quarterbacks are there. So there you go. What, what I yeah, want you got Kyler Murray, right? I mean, Buffalo's playing in Arizona next weekend. That'll actually be a good game because I think Arizona, some people it's debated. They think Kyler Murray sucks or the Cardinals suck. I'm, I think they're great. I think he looks great. And if you have them on your fantasy team, the stats and the points speak for themselves. So but they, they, then, you are what your record is. This is true. This is Same true. Sales, man. You're as good oh. as you were. Your last number. <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah, in brokerage, you are what your commission check is. So, yeah. Uh, all right, Ben, what do you got on the masters real quick? Man, I don't know if anybody saw it, but John Rom skipped a ball across the lake to drain an ace yesterday for a hole in one in a practice round. Still don't know if he did it on purpose or whether yeah, the jury's out on that one. Fooling around, but it's if you haven't seen it, take a moment, Google John Rom Ace or John Rom Masters or even just Masters. It'll probably be the top thing that'll come up. It's yeah. a pretty incredible shot. Watching that, the video of it when he skips it, it like skips across the water like three times, and I felt like it rolled for like thirty Forever. minutes before it actually sank into the hole. Even though I knew it was an ace the first time I watched it, I still kept feeling like the ball wasn't going to make it to the hole. Yeah. Because it rolled like a good 40 feet before it like horseshoe and came right back into the hole. It was nuts. Wow. But I think Bryson is – Bryson's definitely favored. I mean, he yep. has had a phenomenal year. He's literally – I mean, the, I think the cover of Sports Illustrated a week or two ago was, you know, did Bryson break golf, right? I mean, he is absolutely disrupting how the sport's played with his distance, you know, him putting on 40 or 50 pounds – and an extra 50, 60 yards on the field on his drive. It's going to be an interesting Masters to watch this week. I'm excited. Just got to make sure he doesn't put a 10 on the scorecard like he did earlier in the year. Hey, I mean, if you're going to go big, you're going to have bigger margin of error, too. He I totally, mean, like, tin cupped it earlier in the year. Yeah. That was just outstanding. 
So we'll see. I mean, I'm pulling for Rory. I'd like to see Rory get the career grand slam. Um, he just had his first child a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, I think that'd be a great, you know, kind of addition to his season, his career. But we'll see. I mean, that's why they play it. It's true. We'll see who gets the green jacket coming up this weekend. All right, let's get into the episode content here. So we're going to talk about having a niche, okay? And, you know, this is going to be a broader discussion than just that. Uh, but that's going to kind of be our starting point. And kind of like I said earlier, a lot of times, you know, we get the question of, well, how do I get started? You know, what should I be doing as far as who should I be prospecting? I think far too often, very new freight brokers get in and they just try to get on any load list that they can. And they're, they're going after steel and lumber and produce and anything else in the spot market that every other broker is, is going after. And then you see all these loads posted up on the boards and, you know, there's, 40 loads posted to one truck. And it's because you got 40 different brokers all posting the exact same lane. Um, so kind of the, you know, and I did a blog post and it's up on freight 360. I did it, released it last Friday and it was about five tips to success as a freight broker. And one of those was to have a niche. Okay. And an example that I used and we can get, you know, we can kind of peel back the, the layers on this one, but is, you know, that if you're not sure what kind of a niche to start with or what a niche is, uh, think about some, whether it's a commodity or a equipment type that you just want to start with and focus on. And if you're asking yourself, well, what should I pick? And where do I even start with that? There's, there's going to be a lot of trial and error in my opinion, but I think it comes down to, at least for starters, what do you have a, and I'll just make it simple here, an above average level of knowledge on and something that you're passionate about and familiar with. So the example that I used was, if you grew up working on a farm, you have, an, you have a level of knowledge of produce and the shipping that goes along with that above what the rest of the world does or the rest of the country does. Same thing goes with if you worked at a brewery in college, maybe you, you understand the beverage industry better and bottling and the shipping and, and that aspect as well. Same thing with maybe you work construction. You, you were familiar with a lot of the equipment types that are getting moved in those heavy haul loads, you know, excavators and backhoes and things like that. So that is one way to start with the niche. And I think to take it a step further, you have to then focus on that and not get too dissolved across too many niches all at once. Pick one and kind of roll with it. Um, and if you find that you don't like it, it, it's not really working for you, you're not passionate about it, then you can kind of go to another one. And, and eventually over time, you're going to find out what aligns for you. Where does your, you know, what are you good at? Where does that intersect with your passions and your talents and all that good stuff? So that being said, um, Kevin, you know, you, you got into this industry you said, as you put it, you know, in a different life, but um, did you practice this same kind of methodology of starting with some kind of a niche? Did you maybe do something different and fail at that first? How did that look for you? I, I did. You know, I, I think I've always done that in my life too. I've, I've always picked my niche. Um, and, and, and it goes back to, I'm, I'm going to do things that other people aren't doing. And, you know, I was selling some, some advertising sponsorship before I became a freight broker. So I would go into different topics and subjects that no one else had. Right. And I I'd kind of stake my niche. Uh, but I did that when I came in as a freight broker and I was lucky enough to, uh, to come in. It was with Melton Truck Lines, their logistics department. Uh, they're really heavy into to Mexico. The logistics department was really heavy in and out of Mexico, flatbed, heavy haul. So I, you know, what a couple of my big accounts were in and out of Mexico, and I, I focused on that because it's, it's a complicated. Uh, it's it's not quite as complicated now, but back then it definitely was very complicated. You know, you have to go through customs, you know, through trailer. You had to talk to customers into you know transloading because through trailer is too expensive. Um, you know, working with Mexican trucking companies, it was uh, it's. It's a real niche, and I didn't pick that niche. It kind of picked me because I was there, and everyone else was making these great margins on those loads. So I was like, well, that's why I want to do it too. And I had some great teachers, uh, Patty Hinojosa being one of those who taught me taught me how to do that. So, uh, you know, in in that brokerage too, that they, they kind of wanted us to diversify out into dry vans and reefers, and domestic, and it just never really made that much sense to me because. If I can, if I really know how to move Mexican uh, loads, why do anything else? Why am I prospecting? Why am I on the phone with anyone else who does not move freight in and out of Mexico? That's it. I know. 
let's stick with it. And that's a niche. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point. And uh, Ben, I don't know if we've talked about this before. I know I, I had this discussion multiple times a month with people where they're like, you know, Hey, I've got, you know, I've got a customer that's got lanes that are going either into or out of Mexico and they have no idea how to do it. And honestly, it's, it's not an area of expertise for me. Canadian stuff for me is a lot, is a lot more comfortable because I live in Buffalo, which is literally we border Canada. So a lot of the freight and the the carriers up here, it's, it's going in and out. I mean, it's, it's like going across state lines. It's just another country, but the Mexican side to me has always been like the wild, wild West. And I found that carriers are uh, not as apt to, to haul, haul those lanes for you. Um, but there's definitely the, it is, it is not an easy um, niche to get involved in. And I think that brings up a good point is that it shouldn't be something that's too easy. If you're going to master something and be good at it, you want to be the best or one of the best in that field. And that's, what's going to separate you from everybody else. So um, that that's a, the Mexican ones actually, it's a great point. I didn't, and I didn't know that about you. I'm glad to hear that. So. And it is. And I mean, I, I felt the same way. I haven't done much into Mexico. I have a couple of clients I'm actually working through with that right now. But I mean, one is the language barrier, right? It's not really there with Canada. It's absolutely there on the other side. And the other aspects of, you know, the cross border to Mexico that make it difficult is most of the lanes when you're going through with the shippers that the, the brokers or the three pails or even the carriers, they want the round trip, right? Because to source another load, if you're taking them down into Mexico, it's not as fluid to get a backhaul to come back out, right? So when you're not able to match those, it makes it a lot more difficult. It's it's not as fluid as Canada. I mean, can you speak to that at all, Kevin, on kind of how maybe you did some of that or how you learned how to understand that network? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, typically if it's through trailer, so the U.S. driver is going to take it down to Laredo, uh, mm-hmm. drop the trailer there and then pick up another trailer and move that northbound. They're not going to go into Mexico. That's, that's where you get a Mexican uh, trucking company come out over uh, power only. They'll take it to the yard. Then they'll repower it to, to wherever it might be, Monterey usually. And so a lot of drivers will only go down to Laredo. If you're transloading, right, it's just a Laredo load. Yeah. Um, but, but you build up a carrier network where – you know, I had probably eight or nine, 10 flatbed carriers in the Midwest where we're taking steel coils. And, you know, in three or four phone calls, I, I found somebody, you know, don't have to negotiate the rate. It's, it's like a sewing machine. It's just very fluid. Hey, I got another load. Do you want it? Yes. Let's go down Laredo. And I would I would then contact the Mexican side, uh, that, that trucking company, and say, hey, we, I, this is what is going to be arriving in our yard in Laredo. It's going to be transloaded. Here's the, the customs paperwork. You know, we're, we're going to take it over to the customs yard and customs could take one, two, three weeks. Right. And that's where it gets a little complicated. And then the visibility in Mexico was, was, it was kind of dicey a little bit at that point. I think most uh, Mexican trucking companies have better visibility, but it's still that, that chain of custody and having multiple parties involved because you have drayage to customs, you have drayage across a bridge, you have, you know, you have the the, the, the craziness of, of delivering in, in the interior of Mexico sometimes. So it can be complica- complicated. It's very hands-on. It's certainly not a volume game. You're not going to be moving 50 of these a day because it's just too complicated, uh, which makes it a specialty. It's the same with uh, with heavy haul, right? Heavy haul, you know, it's, 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 there, there's a little bit more, um, Risk, what do you right? say? a little bit more complexities. More complexity and the more risk associated with mm-hmm. it. The more complicated, the more convoluted. But also, like you said, I mean, you're not going to go up to the volume, but you are likely probably making a lot more in the margin because that takes more time, and you should be able to charge for it, right? And we talk about this a lot. Mm-hmm. And you do, you do. The, the the better you get at something, and the the easier you can take these complexities and make them simplicities for you and your customer, the the more margin you're going to make. Right. The more you can charge and the more efficient you're going to get is going to be a wider margin. And it's, you're going to become an expert at that. And people, uh, you'll be able to sell that at first, right? You'll be able to, to demonstrate your expertise on phone calls going forward. And then at that certain great point in every salesperson life, people will start seeking you out yeah. for your advice. And that's where you want to get to. 
And here, here's an example of where I've seen that in a different industry. And this, this is in the, uh, the produce market. So um, a, a broker that I've known for many, many years that I've worked with, um, he is, his niche is moving produce that has one pick, but it has usually like three or four drops along the way. And where the specialty comes in there is that he understands the different facilities that he has to drop at between his first pickup and his final delivery. And even though the appointment times have a window, he knows that if the driver doesn't make it to stop number two by this time, even though he's got four more hours, according to the appointment time, he's not going to make that third drop, let alone the fourth one on time. So kind of, I mean, it's, I know it sounds like a crazy idea, but a freight broker being able to understand uh, transit times, right? But uh, mm-hmm. th- that's, that's another niche in itself is to be able to piece together those different stops along the way and understanding, hey, at this facility and at that facility, things operate a little bit differently. There's different priorities when carriers come in. And when it's come down to now, like you said, I like the, the idea of a sewing machine. It's so smooth like that, that he has the same carriers. He never has to post a load ever. He'll just call and say, hey, do you, do you guys still want this, this run that's going out this weekend? And not to mention a lot of those, um, those stops and those check calls are happening Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we're talking 2 a.m., midnight. So, and that's not the standard easy freight that a lot of new brokers want to deal with. But when you can do that and separate yourself and be good and reliable and give those, those updates to your customer and have that in-transit visibility, that's what's going to make you stand out from the competition. And it's you, so you have this inherent kind of a moat, and they talk about this, you know, mm-hmm. business economics around you, which prevents the, the competition from coming after the same people. But, and, and this is the thing where I think a lot of people have difficulties. Put yourself in the shipper's shoes, right? If you're the shipper and I've got somebody like Kevin, he's reducing my risk. He reduces the amount of people I have to contact to get the work done. So it makes sense. And my willingness to pay him a margin is there. Like without a doubt, I'd be willing to pay you more because my time and the amount of risk that I have are going down. That's why the economics are in your favor when you have that niche. It's the same when you, uh, as a freight broker, when you hire a carrier, right? If you hire a carrier, you work with closely, you know, they understand, you know, like, like Nate was saying that there's stops and you work Mm -hmm. with them, you're going to pay them a little bit more. Because it takes the risk off off your table, right? And it's the, the same same dynamic when you're working with a shipper. The shippers, so they don't even have to worry about it. They just know that you're going to get the job done. It's complex, but you're gonna you're gonna get the job done. If there's any issues, you're going to be able to handle them, or you know you have a great partnership. That is uh, that that's. That that's worth the, the extra money because time is money. If you if you're spending your time worrying about what's going to happen or worrying about things going wrong or things going wrong, that that eats up a lot of those indirect costs. I should say. Absolutely, and your energy, and plus the referral side, right? Like the 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 holy grail of sales, right? Business coming to us. And I noticed, and and we talked about this off the air. That's and we'll get into this in a bit too. But like when I had the niches that I worked into out of necessity as well, right? Like needed to find a way to differentiate myself from everybody else I was competing at. But the carriers would then be willing, they would start referring me business, right? Because when they would go pick up somewhere else and, you know, they're the ones that know what's going on. They're literally boots on the ground. They're at the next dock. They're talking to that shipping director. And this guy's complaining, hey, you know, the last handful of loads that I've had to get in and out of Mexico were horrible. That trucker who's been talking to me, just like in your instance, right? You're giving them the load. You're willing to pay them a little more. That rapport and relationships there. Who do you think they're telling that that guy he needs to reach out to? Hey, you know what? Give Kevin a call over at so-and-so, right? He's been handling this. I know he works for a lot of other customers down here. He absolutely can save you some of the headache and time. That's really where this comes from, right? I think, uh, and to kind of elaborate off that, um, to, to try and shy away from being the jack of all trades, right? And being, I think it's always good to be dangerous enough in any part of the industry that you can at least understand and have the conversation about, but to have that one niche and that one specific area that you're dedicated to and so focused on and passionate about that you are being sought out. Ben, like you said, it's the holy grail of, of the industry, right? Um, I've seen the same thing, you know, and people always ask, well, how long does it take me to get to that point? And personally, you know, my, my specific niche in the industry is working with independent agents who don't have their own authority. They're not an employee for a company, but they want to operate as a sole proprietorship or basically as a business owner, but not carry a lot of that risk uh, where they have to run their own brokerage. So um, whether or not somebody works with me, I've built up a network over the last 
six, seven years that if someone has a question about, hey, here's how my back office is treating me, or um, this happened over at this company, does this sound right? And I, you know, I have the ins and outs and I, I've got connections all over different agent-based companies and I understand what's right and what's kind of seems off. So being sought out and, you know, I'll get questions all the time on LinkedIn, people asking this, that, and the other thing and getting to that point where you are the go-to is when I think you can say that you've found your niche and you've mastered it, but you, you got to always continue to keep learning. Um, but how long does it take to get there? Personally, for me, two to three years before I was kind of in that, spotlight of people new to come to me. And that a lot of that came down to me having to connect and network extensively and very, very heavily over those first few years to get my name and to be relevant. And you can't just be involved. You have to actually be interactive. You have to have the knowledge and be right. You know, and not, not value, just right? given fluff. Yeah. So you're adding value, right? And you and I have talked about this too, right? And, and how you've been able to gain that market and how you were intentional about engaging through whether it's LinkedIn or just in-person meetings, right? Because the other side of this, right? And the question we get a lot, Nate, is, well, you know, I don't want to prospect. This is difficult. Like when you have that niche and you own it, when you're picking up the phone to call, your confidence goes through the roof, right? And you don't feel as hesitant to tell a shipper like, hey, maybe we're not a good fit. Like maybe in this case, like I'm great at doing cross borders. This is what I specialize in. I'm really good at drayage. But if you don't do any of that, then like, hey, maybe we aren't a good fit to work together. That is so well respected from their point of view because they're so used to having, like we talked about earlier, every broker in the world calling them, telling them that they can do everything in the world that they've ever needed done. And they'll do it better than anybody they've ever talked to for a lower rate than anybody that has ever seen, right? And when you try to be everything to everybody, you end up being no one to no one, right? A, a jack of all trades is usually a master of none. So, and Kevin, you kind of brought this up uh, off air before we, we started today was the, the whole idea of getting involved in the, and networking. And there's the, the idea of LinkedIn with, do you, do you tag people? Do you hop on these virtual happy hours or hangouts? And um, do you, do you see those as valuable ways to, to grow your network, to become relevant, to have your name be, uh, to stand out and be remembered? What, you know, what are some ways that people can connect and network and get involved like that and add some value? I link LinkedIn, a, a very valuable, valuable tool. So, so is Twitter. I, I, I haven't really gotten on Twitter too much. I, I'm starting to more and more, uh, but, but you, so that, that networking in person, virtual, whatever you can do. Uh, ben was just saying that the referrals, right? Um, uh, you know, or, or not even the referrals, but, but being, having the confidence to say, you know, maybe we're not a good fit. You know, I'm, I'm not really good with grayage, but you have to network enough to be able to refer that shipper to whoever you think is the expert in drayage, whoever, you know, fits that bill for you. And by doing that, you know, though those contacts are currency in, in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And they 100%. do definitely, yeah. They, they, they pay dividends uh, down the road, but it is hustling 24-7 for those first two or three years, like you said, Nate. It's two or three years at least of just hustling, just talking to everyone, uh, adding value. And I, I think a lot of people have a, a negative con con cognition to networking a little bit because uh, a lot of people network without really adding value. That they don't really have anything to add value is just collecting names. And that's not a good way to go, go about it. I, I, I found when I started carrier lists and I was cold calling everybody, cold emailing everybody, uh, I, I built up a network very quickly because I had something uh, of mine, something of value to, to the show. And even, you know, most people didn't buy it, but, but they, they, they liked the idea of it. Uh, a lot of people out in the tech space, um, you know, use it as a data source. Uh, so it opened those doors, but yeah, it, it takes two or three years. It de depends on how much work you want to put into it. If you want, want to work nine to five and go home and play video games all night, may, it might take you 10 years, right? <laughs> uh, if you, if you become obsessed with it, it, yeah, two or three years, two or three years. I, I'm glad that it takes two to three years because the, the barrier to entry exists and that's what allows the people that actually will are willing to put in the time and effort to do it. Mm -hmm. It allows folks like them and like us to succeed by going down that path, right? Because two to three years, that's a, you know, that's a very long commitment. Cause if you were to tell somebody, Hey, you know, 
what, what, what if I told you that if you did this, you know, you could be a successful broker and you could make the, the margins and the, the GP that you wanted to make, you know, would you be willing to put in the, the hard work? Well, yeah, I would. Well, are you willing to be patient and wait two to three years for the fruits of your labor to be there. And a lot of times people are like, well, I want it and I want it now. That's the society we live in. So by, you know, separating that and putting that barrier up that you've got to be consistent. This can't just be a little side hustle. This has to be your number one passion that you are really intentional about and focused on. I, I personally love that, it, that, you know, it takes that amount of time. Agreed. I, there's one of our coaches does a, um, she, she does a, it's like a speaking piece on the comparison of this to farming. And it's so true, right? She'll do this exam. She's like, you know, you got to plant tons of seeds. If you want an orchard and you want to be able to go harvest, whatever that is right there, are different seasons. There's a planting season. There's a harvesting season. She's like so many salespeople go out and throw a bunch of seeds out then they run outside and then they're staring at the dirt going, why don't I have any fruit yet? Why don't I have any fruit yet? Right? Like, You've got to be patient. You've got to keep planting seeds. You have to keep nurturing it. One of my favorite adages, you know, from the BNI world is, you know, givers gain. It's the way I've always approached networking. It's the way I've approached, I still do approach it on LinkedIn, whether it's virtual or in person is I'm not seeing what I can get into any of these things, right? I'm looking to see what I can do to add value. You know, Zig Ziglar championed this 50 years ago. You know, if you can just help enough people get what they want in life, You'll always be able to make sure that you get what you need at the end, right? And if you approach networking and interacting with even one person at a time, whether it's 25 or one, and you think, how can I help this person? You know, who do I know in my network that I could connect them with that would make their life easier, maybe help them get to the next step? Whether or not they do help you right now, that's really how I believe you can build a valuable network over those two to three year periods. Yeah, you're exactly right, Ben. You, you are. It takes two or three years. And, and the networking part of it, and I, you know, and to Nate's point, well, like, oh, you know, I, I've been short-sighted in sales jobs. You know, I wanted that now. I didn't want to put in all the hard work. I didn't want all the, the, the politics. I, I didn't want any of, of that and until I started my own business. And, you know, you're responsible for everything. No one's going to come in with a safety net for you. So you learn the importance of that and you learn building for the future because no matter what business you do, you're not really going to pay yourself for the first two or three years. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, you know, very few people have the luxury of being able to pay themselves a great salary from day one of their company. Or any and, salary. And uh, to hit on, to, I want to go back to Ben's point about the the farming, right? This is a little bit, it's, it's, it relates a little bit with farming, but the, the difference between the hunting mentality and the farming mentality when it comes to not just growing your business as a broker, but growing your network and your, inf- your sphere of influence out, right? If you just go and hang out in a Facebook group or a LinkedIn group and you just read and watch everything, you know, you're kind of like a farmer, you're just kind of being passive. Um, whereas if you're the hunter and you're going out there intentional and you're, you're starting conversations, you're responding to posts, you're adding value, you are writing articles, you are sharing free content. You know, you're not asking for people's money. You're just trying to say, this is what, here's what I know. Here's my opinion. It's worth what you're paying for it, which is nothing, but for somebody, it might be worth a lot. You know what I mean? So I think by being intentional and having that more of that hunter mentality of getting out there and being proactive versus the farmer that, you know, sits there, plants the seeds, lets the rain come down on its own. And, you know, six months down the road, you get some corn that comes up and it's, you know, half-assed growing sideways and doesn't really work out. But um, that, that's the difference. You know, the, the, the farming mentality is great if you're an operations person that wants somebody else to bring the, bring the, the loads in and you're just going to do some check calls and whatever, work your nine to five. But if you want to go out there and control your own destiny and put as many zeros on the end of your paycheck that you want, you've got to have that intentional mindset. Go out there and have that niche, find the niche, and then grow it and, and be as much of an expert as you can in that field. So, so Nate, I always read your blog posts and, and this is a, a perfect example. I, I write blog posts too. Um, and that's a huge barrier entry just in itself. You know, you're talking about creating content, sharing that content, just, just a simple act of writing a blog post once a week is a huge um, moat because you know how many people are going to actually sit down and be dedicated enough to, to write that out. It's not easy. I mean, it's five, six, seven hundred words. Yep. It ain't easy. I agree. Know? 
takes a lot of concentration. So that's a that's a huge moat in of itself, and that that separates out the those creators of content that that the three of us are creators of content. But it's so powerful that the rewards down the line, two or three, four years later, are immense. So as a, I'll, I'll kind of head on the blog post part for you. Cause we're all, like you said, we're all in the same arena of, of content creation. So it's funny to me when I write a blog post, I truly enjoy it. And if you're, if you're doing something because you feel like you have to, and you're not enjoying it, it's probably not the right avenue for you to go down. Like, for example, when I was in college back in the day and we had to write, you know, 10, 15 page papers, I absolutely hated it. Cause I didn't want to write a paper about whatever the hell we were writing about in that class. But this is an industry that I'm passionate about and the, the people aspect of it and building relationships and overcoming objections and um, finding your niche, all that different stuff. That is something that I am passionate about. So when it comes to sitting down and you know writing a blog post out and you're right, seven, 800 words, even, even if it only takes you three, four minutes to, to read that blog post, it, it takes you know an hour plus to formulate your ideas, write it down, go through, revise it, edit it, make sure it's relevant and have it ready for, you know, to be published and, and pushed out. So it's, it's crystal clear and clean. Um, but that being said, like, the, I guess the, the takeaway here is make sure that it's something that you are passionate about and that you enjoy doing. Because when I, when I do this kind of stuff, it doesn't feel like a job like I would envision 10 years ago when I was an inside sales rep somewhere. And I felt like, uh, you know, I don't want to be selling this, but I guess I have to, because we want to hit our quotas for the month. And is it five o'clock yet? Is it five thirty? Is it the weekend yet? You know, thank God it's Friday. Oh my God, it's Monday. But you don't feel that way when you're actually passionate about something you enjoy doing it. Cause you know, like I said before, where you're talented, what you're passionate about and what you're good at, where, where that all kind of comes together. It, that's what's going to separate someone who's excited about their job and is good at it from someone who just is kind of going through the motions and just it's, it's, you know, they want something different. So I think one of the things too with that piece is that I was, Seth Godin did a great piece on this too, specifically to writing, right? And he goes, you know, a lot of people complain that they can't write or they have writer's block or that what they write isn't good enough. And he goes, there's no such thing as writer's block. He said, all writer's block is, is the fact that what you've written or what you think you're going to write doesn't meet the standard of which you have to put it out to be evaluated by whoever that is whether it's one person, a teacher, a group, media, wherever, right? And he's like, the only way to get through that, and he's like, this is the answer that nobody likes is, you, if you want to be a writer or you want to do this, you have to do more of it, right? You don't need to share everything you write, but if you're having a hard time doing this and this is something you want to do, you need to get consistent and do it every day. Write for an hour a day. Write for a half an hour a day. Block out some time and try to do one of these things over a long enough period of time that you can actually evaluate it instead of the first time you sit down, you didn't come up with a great blog. So you just completely quit and then never did it again. Right. Is what I think most people do in that scenario. Let me give you an example of these are just a couple of free little nuggets of information and tips here. So I'm going to hit on the, uh, the cold calling piece and the, the writing piece when it comes to how, how can you get better at it? So for me, when it came to, to writing articles and blogs over the years, I, I actually started off by having a personal online journal that only I could see. And I would just start off by writing about my day or what happened in the last week. And I got, I found that I could find my voice in my writing style by doing that before I actually put it publicly in an article or blog type of um, presentation or, or mode like that. And the cold calling piece, this was years back when I had to, you know, like you say writing block or writer's block. There's the same thing with the 10,000 pound phone, right? That you can't pick up. So what I would do to get more comfortable with, with hopping on the phone was I started calling like old friends and buddies of mine that I hadn't talked to in a while. Cause there was a little bit of that level of, it was a little uncomfortable, but I would just do that. And I would start to find out that like, there's a, you get really in the, you know, in the, the, the fluidness of Groove. things when you can start to do that in a little bit more of a comfortable setting before you start doing with the, you know, with a uh, stranger on the other end of the phone. So I think that's great. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's important to know. I, I, I really do because I, I do the same thing. Nate. I, 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 you know, I, I, I've been writing more over the last two or three years than I've ever written in my life. And I, one of the, the, one of the tips I can give you, I don't care if it's good or bad. I'm going to, I'm going to write out 600 words and then I'll, yeah. I'm going to figure it out after that because I'm never going to write the perfect thing 
at once in 10 minutes or, or 30 minutes. I'm going to have to go back and rework everything at least once or twice. And, you know, just accept that as a fact. And I will just spill out a stream of consciousness and then it will give me something to at least work with and edit and, and do that. But you're going to be, no matter what you do, whether it's cold calling, uh, you know, freight brokers, writing, podcasting, speaking, whatever, when you first start out, you're going to suck. Yeah. You know, and absolutely, you're going to, you're going to suck at it. And if you're passionate and obsessed about getting to where you're going, it's not going to matter to you at all because you're just going to keep doing it and learn and learn and learn and learn as you go. And then in a year or two, you know, two or three years that that market expert type of time frame that we've been talking about where it's, you start not sucking as bad at least, you know, yeah. you start, you start thinking, well, I, I think I know, I, I'm pretty competent at this now. I, I still have a lot to learn about it. Well, I'm kind of competent. And that's a good feeling to have too. And you have to get to that. You, you have to be obsessed with, no matter what you do, you have to be obsessed and passionate about it to get those zeros on your paycheck. If, if you're not obsessed with it, you're, that success is just never going to get there. Go do something else. Agreed. And that, I was just going to make that same point that, you know, whether it's brokerage or any other part, maybe you're a, a dispatcher for a carrier, or you tried to start your own trucking company or you name it, right? It's not for everybody. Okay. And if you are intentional about it, you put the time in, you do the hustle and grind. And if you're not, if you just don't enjoy it, it's probably time to, to take a shift in your focus and go find a different career because it, it only get, the more complex it gets, the harder it gets. It's not going to get any, any easier by any means. Does, does hard mean it's not enjoyable? No, because I mean, I think one of the biggest uh, personality types in freight brokers is being a problem solver. So the more problems you have that you can solve, it gives you more gratification in the work that you do. So if you're in the, if you're, you know, new into brokerage and you're not liking making all the, the dials or having to give bad news to your customer because the truck is late or broke down, or there's a damage to the shipment or whatever, it's probably not the right industry for you. And it's probably best that you go, you make that decision now and just kind of cut your losses and move on and find something that you're going to be better suited for. It's, it's nothing negative towards that person. It's just that we, we all have a different purpose and probably the, a best aligned career field. And it's not always going to be freight brokerage. People a lot of times hear, oh my God, these brokers can make so much money. Well, yeah, but not all of them do. The ones that are really good at it and really enjoy doing it, those are the ones that are the, the top producers. And, and I will say that there's another way. I mean, you know, I, I didn't like, you know, booking loads and giving bad news to customers. And I, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't ever going to be the, the top 10% of a freight broker day in, day out hustling. Um, though there's other things that you can do as well. You know, I, I, I knew some tools that I needed to make my job easier that didn't exist. And I'm still in the freight industry because I love the freight industry, not necessarily being a freight broker every single day. Um, but, but, you know, you come up with a, a a data product that you can sell to other freight brokers. Um, you, you become a podcaster and talk about the industry. So there's other things you can do if you still love the freight industry, but you don't have the drive to, to make a, a hundred cold calls a day selling to, to shippers, right? Uh, there, there's other avenues, but whatever you do, exactly Nate. you have to love and and get up and and not think of it as work i've seen folks too that like you said not everybody likes doing it and it's not the the long-term role for them i've seen folks that have after a few years of brokering they've shifted to more of a contract-based consultant for specific mm -hmm. shipping companies to go in there and be you're my one dedicated company i'm not asking you to hire me we'll just do a, a short to mid-range contract maybe six to 18 months. I'm going to show you how to do all this yourself so you can be more efficient and know what's happening out there on the other end of the, the phone line when you talk to brokers and asset-based companies directly. And then, you know, you can have a referral to the next one or go find your next one. That, that is another that outlet is, as well. You know what that is? It's a niche. That is a niche. It, it is, is a niche. niche. Speaking of which, right? So, kind of tying that back together, what are some, from both your points of view, I guess, what is some advice for somebody that is having a hard time finding or just starting to search out for a niche? What advice would you give to somebody out there asking themselves right now? Okay, that's great. I feel like I should have a niche, but everything I've done in my past was just another sales job. Or, you know, a lot of the people in the industry are early twenties, mid twenties, or 
maybe doesn't have this background, right? What are some things that people can do to help find that niche, do you think? I'll, I'll go first on this one. I think the, um, the biggest thing, and this kind of goes with prospecting the same way, is you've got to have a large amount to kind of pick from and then sift through and kind of figure it out. So first of all, I think if you're new as a broker and you're trying to find your niche, you need to know what markets and what niches are actually out there in the first place. So you should you should have a fairly good understanding of the commodities that are normally shipped, uh, the, the common lanes for those commodities, the different equipment types. Um, and then I think you need to go talk to other folks that are doing this job successfully and find out you know, what do they love about their job? What are some of the downsides of that type of freight? And you've got to just kind of start to filter through and sift through all the information and knowledge you have. And then you've got to, you know, settle on a few and then kind of work from there. I, I think to get as much exposure as possible. And Ben, we always say it, you have to, you've got to learn from someone who's already successful at what, you know, at what you're trying to do, whether that is someone that knows the expedite world, they know how to use select this. They understand the different, you know, types of box trucks, box trucks and sprinter vans, um, someone that knows power only, someone that knows flatbed and the high volume of quoting on steel and lumber and figure out, you know, do they like that, that specific niche and why do they like it? And you can kind of figure out from yourself hearing the conversation with them, does that sound interesting to you? So I think you have to start and give yourself exposure to as much as possible. And then your gut is probably going to tell you the right direction that you want to go in. Kevin, what do you think? I, I agree with that. You know, it's a process of elimination. It's yep. like what Thomas Edison says. I, I know 99% of the ways not to generate electricity. Yeah, the light bulb not work. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't invent a light bulb. I found 9,999 yeah. ways not to make a light bulb. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think it starts with saying I want a niche and, and focusing on finding a niche or knowing that it's important. Then your eyes start opening up. It's, it's like red Volkswagens, right? You never notice them until someone puts that, that thought in your head, and then you see them all over the place. So, uh, and whether it's the, something that you know in your background, it's, it's got to focus right on on what you like to do, what you're passionate about, what, what you can get obsessed uh, about. So it could be your background. It could be uh, like me, the, the, the place I showed up in to, to start as a freight broker, had a niche, and I learned that niche, and I enjoyed it. You know, I made a made a lot of money off of that 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 niche. So it can be, uh, you know, there's several different ways to do it. But Nate, I think you summed it up there. You know, you just have to sift through all those opportunities and find one that fits with you. It's, it's you're selling yourself on a niche, I suppose, right? Because that's yep. the sales process, but you know, down to a T. Absolutely. So a, a couple other examples of, uh, and I've seen this a lot. There's probably three or four folks that I've I've talked to and stayed in touch with over the years that um, they were on the military side. So they served in the military in the transportation sector. So they worked with a lot of third-party brokerages that were commercial that had contracts with DOD. And they might've been like a, a unit movement officer or they worked in the transportation office for the, the base or the state. And they left and when they got in, or they, you know, they got out of the military. Uh, happy Veterans Day to all the veterans, by the way, we're recording on, uh, on Wednesday here. Um, but th they went out and that was their niches. They were so familiar with the, the military side of the house. And they either went to a company that had the, you know, the SCAC and the, the contracts, or they went and started their own brokerage and put the hustle and grind and time in to do that themselves. And it's something that they're passionate about. They can still relate to their military service and they're familiar with all of it. So that that's another great way as well. So like you said, to be able to be obsessed about it. And I don't know, I don't know a single veteran that doesn't still like talking about their war stories because it, it's kind of ingrained in them and it's, it's in their blood. So Makes that's sense. another great example. And my, my approach was kind of the opposite. It was contrarian, right? I worked for a large brokerage. My biggest barrier was actually the competition of my peers, right? My colleagues within the same company and being able to get leads. Five, 5,500 other brokers, everyone's fighting for the same leads. I'm like, okay, well, that's my biggest barrier to entry. And that company was, you know, founded on produce. So the majority of people, high margin, high risk, high profit, and they encouraged everybody to do it. And I'll never forget sitting there with the one trainer really early on going, that's great, but isn't everybody doing this? And he's like, well, yeah, it's because it works. I'm like, but I should probably go the other direction. If everybody's moving in this direction and I go in this direction, mm -hmm. I'll probably have a little bit more success getting some leads, finding some companies that everybody's not going after. And that was, that was how I ended up in trades, right? The whole company, most of the industry felt like it wasn't profitable enough to do it. And I had very little competition. 
a whole lot of learning curve that was super steep that took a ton of time. And like you said, work outside of work to learn that. But once I did, it was, hey, there's nobody around me. Nobody really understands this. Nobody's got this. It's the same we were talking about with Mexico, right? Like there's a moat around me, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. a barrier to entry. You now have to spend the amount of time I did to learn this to be able to compete with me. And I know most people weren't willing to do that. And whatever that is, like could be information is your competitive edge, could be your excitement, could be your interest, could be your passion, but find something that is going to give you that competitive edge, typically something you are interested in. It'll make that studying and work outside there a lot more palatable and a lot, a lot more likely to actually follow through with it, right? It's a great point. Very good point. You're, you always are a contrarian, Ben. That's what I like about you, though. Yeah. March to the beat of your point. own drum. You know, if, if the, there's nobody in the market where, where you want to go, right? Like dredge, if, if everyone else yeah. is focused on produce and you go over and do dredge, you're, you're kind of out on your own, very yeah. little competition. And I would, I would say to, to everybody is, uh, who wants to understand more about what we're talking about with, with moats is go read Value Investors and Warren Buffett in particular. He talks about it a lot. Yeah. And, and once you, you hear his thoughts on it, it makes a whole lot of sense. He can explain it very well. Awesome. Any final thoughts on uh, having a niche or, or networking before we hop into some Q&A here? It was a good discussion. It was a great, great discussion. You, you have to have a niche. If you're a freight broker, you have to have a niche because you can't, you, you can't be like the, the kitchen sink that, that we've all seen the emails of, you know, we can do van, flatbed, reefer. We're, we're great at everything. You know, you are going to waste so much of your time working on opportunities that you're just not going to be able to fulfill and you're going to lose a lot of opportunity, a lot of money along the way, pick a niche, get good, good at something and go expand those margins. Absolutely. That's great advice. I think, and that's why most people end up in the, the rate game where they're like, oh, I'm just quoting all day long and nobody's giving me a load. It's like, well, because you're only competing on price and you're trying to be everything to everybody and you end up being only a rate at that point because you don't have any value proposition. There's nothing inherently specific. It's a good point. All right. So we got some good questions here on the Q&A side. Um, Kevin, we've got, I've, I feel like this first one's going to probably be good for you, especially given the company that you own. So this question, uh, these, these all came from online, various sources. The first question somebody asked, how many carriers do you set up each day, week, or month? My company seems to rely on new carriers too much. And I think that the simple answer here is it really all depends on what kind of company you're in, where they're at in their business. Like, are they new? Because if they're new, they're going to have a lot of new carriers. But, you know, you obviously, you started your your company carrier lists and there's a big value in having good quality carriers and knowing, you know, the the right people to work with. So, how would you answer that question? How many carriers should you be setting up per day, per week, per month? Should it be a lot? Should it be, should we be focusing on repeat? What do you think? As little as possible. As little as yes. possible. But you guys both know this, this answer too is if you look at any company's carrier, carrier CRM or carrier network, you know, the people that they have onboarded, 80% of those are going to be one and done. If not more, if not more, exactly right. If not more, and then you're going to have the next 15 to 16% or, you know, sporadic, and then you're going to have your power carriers. So you want to get in a position where you're not onboarding anybody as a, as a freight broker. I know that's impossible, but I I don't really know a number, but I would say as little as possible, you want to, uh, to build up those, those, carrier networks you also want to get those lanes that are consistent to where you they're, they're already always repeating where you're not having to work on new opportunities all the time and i think that's the important piece right the two things to consider are one you can solve this by trying to be more consistent in the freight you're going to get from your customers and shippers right and on the other side of this if you're constantly focusing on this from the transactional side start having a little bit better conversations with your carriers and ask them, hey, are you here often? Are you here every week these days? Would this load work for you every week, right? Because if the carrier says, hey, I can pick this up every week, get back on the phone and call your shipper and tell them, hey, I've got a carrier, can run this consistently. 
valuable. They're, they're reliable. This is somebody I would like to work with. And then make, make the demand meets the supply, right? Like that's really all we do as brokers anyway. Good answers. Good answers. All right. So the, I guess the, the long answer short is as little as possible. I couldn't agree with that more. All right. Next question. Um, this, this is focused on hiring. So uh, the question was, should potential new hires be given a copy of the training manual and what should the interview process look like? So there, there was more of a discussion on this question, but the, the background was that right now what this company, this brokerage is doing is when they're hiring sales reps, account managers, in-house brokers, whatever you want to call them, they go through like an, an HR interview where they're screened by, you know, not a transportation specialist, but just a simple HR person that goes over the resume and does some background screening. And then the next interview is with either like a sales team leader or a manager, someone that's going to be supervising them in that role. And before they decide if they want to hire this person or not, they're contemplating giving them the training manual for that company and then having them come back with some feedback on it. And here, here's my answer on it. I don't like the idea of giving out internal documentation to someone that's not working for your company. I just think there's a little bit too much risk there. What I've always thought was a, an interesting way to do an interview process was when you get to that point where you're wondering if they should be hired or not, instead of giving them internal information, why don't you have them, you know, after the second interview, go home and call up the person that did the interview and have them leave a voicemail, almost like a sales prospecting voicemail or, and, or both also draft up a follow-up email and kind of show their worth, not, not, Hey, here's how we do things in our manual, but show me what your follow-up process looks like and what your voicemail sounds like if you're going to, if you're going to call on a shipper. Um, so what do you guys think? Should you be giving out training information before someone's hired? What is that interview process? What should it look like? Ben, you've probably got more exposure in this than Kevin and I do with being from a larger brokerage in your background. But what do you guys think? Good, Kevin. What are your thoughts? I, you know, I would be hesitant about giving out training materials. What, what, what do you think about job shadowing? You know, having someone come come out, sit on the floor for a couple of hours. I, I think that would weed out. I, but I do that. like your 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 thoughts, Nate, on on that tryout. You know, leave a voice message, uh, do a couple things that that prove that that you have the hustle and the grind to do it. But I, I think job shadowing would be good because I, I think it'd weed out a lot of people that, uh, especially the younger younger guys and girls that don't really understand what they're getting into and and it, it will make sure that you don't hire people who are going to quit three days later agreed because i think those are the things right like you're trying to assess one is this the person right fit and two can they do the more difficult aspects of the job those are my two favorite things that we coach when we're you know helping develop recruiting processes for companies is one, having shadow time with them so they can literally see what that day is like, right? The other one is, and this is my favorite one, is to put them in a room, give them a list of phone numbers and listen to what they say. And gauge how long does it take them to actually pick up the phone and make that call, right? How long does it take them? What did they say? What was it? And I mean, I, I've had that done to me in an interview and I've used that and it has been very helpful on both occasions. And I still remember how nervous I was, even though I was comfortable making calls when in that interview, they're like, here, Ben, here's the phone. Call these 10 people. Let us know how it goes. And I just walked out of the room. I was like, okay. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you an example of something that I had happen in an interview process with me. So my first job out of college I worked for Ingram Micro, which is a big distributor of IT stuff, whether it's software, hardware, you name it. So in the interview, um, obviously I was coming out of college, didn't have a lot of experience. My my job during college, I, I worked at Best Buy selling computers and TVs and all that stuff. Uh, so I had a, you know, I had a passion for technology and products and stuff like that. But the the manager of the team that I was looking to get hired on, um, he was like, I'm curious, you know, you were at Best Buy for a few years and He's like, my son is going to college next year and we're looking at a computer. And he, we just kind of talked through like what he should get his son for a computer. And after a few minutes, he's like, he's like, Nate, what I just did there was, and he's like, you didn't even know. He's like, I just had you sell me this pen, but instead it was sell me this computer that I need for my son. So he, he kind of had it wrapped up in a, in a, like a little bit of a, a, 
you know, camouflage. So I didn't even understand what was happening, but it, it had me naturally show my ability to communicate and go through the, the sales process with him on something. So um, there's all kinds of, that's a little bit less intimidating than here's 10 phone numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. But uh, there's a lot of creative ways to do it. But short answer is you shouldn't give away the training material because I don't really think it adds any value to the situation. I don't think yeah. the person has any context to understand it for the most part anyway. You're really mm-hmm. just giving away your IP for no reason. I, I think when you're hiring somebody, you should you should be focused on someone that already has a lot of inherent skill and ability that you can use and I guess mold to your organization where they're going to, you know, you're not training them how to sell. You're, you've got someone who's a good communicator and a good problem solver already. And now you're going to have them apply that in your organization. So you need to identify um, if they can do that and then have help them focus what they're good at in a way that's going to benefit your company. Not just, Hey, here's our manual, go learn it and come back and we're going to test you on it. So plus they could steal it. I mean, that's an obvious one as well. All right. Good, good question. Last question here. Um, how long should it take a broker to produce $2,500 per week in gross profit? So um, this is way up in the air. It totally depends. And I think this is actually a guy that asked the question. This was the guy that, Ben, remember he was like a sub agent for an agent. And he's like, you know, I'll make $1,000 on a load. My agent gets 60%. So that gets, you know, there's $600 commission. Then I get 20% of his commission. So I'm effectively getting 12% commission, but I'm putting up these numbers. Like, you know, how, you know, if I, they want me to be at 2,500 a week, how long should it take me to get there? And my whole thing was, dude, you should not be working for somebody else. If you're, if you're at those level numbers already and making those bigger rips. Uh, but how, let, let's talk about the actual question here. Cause I think, you know, a lot of the bigger companies out there, they want to see a, a weekly average of brokerage margin that you're going to produce over a month two months, three months, whatever. And they want to see you consistent there. That gives you some, the average gives you room for margin on your uh, ups and downs throughout your weeks. If you have project-based stuff or if it's seasonal, whatever. Um, ben, you're going to, ha- I mean, you're probably the, the expert on this one. How long should it take someone to get to that 2,500 a week or 2,000, whatever that target should be? Are we looking at the first six months faster than that? What do you think? Honestly, my favorite way to gauge this, because this question is really asked, I think, and when it's asked in the industry, it's, hey, you know, is the risk there? So are you offsetting the cost as an employee that, you know, you're worth your seat at that point in time? It's right around that number. My favorite way to look at this in the short run, which is, I think, the first year, the first 12 months is to not necessarily evaluate your GP. I think it's important, but I don't think it's the most important. I think the most important is, is this rep creating opportunities? Are they generating new opportunities by being out on the phone and creating these on a weekly basis, whether it's one, two, or five, right? That's the activity I'm looking for when I'm evaluating whether or not somebody has, honestly, the stuff that it needs to be to be able to stay there long-term. Because, you know, you might be able to do four or five grand and then the shipper might have a great opportunity, but then something happens outside of that broker's control and it drops back to zero, right? There's too many things outside of the broker's control, I think, to just be evaluated on GP. But if I was just to look at this number, I'd say 12 months, honestly, 13, 14 for the average broker probably to get there. I think that's lenient. Kevin, do you have any input on it? Uh, Probably not any exact input, but is that 2,500 a week, did you say? 2,500 a week, yep. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I think that is lenient, 12, 13 months. uh, it's realistic in a, in a lot of cases, though. It, it took me a long time to get up to uh, twenty five hundred a week, you know, and and, and part of that was it, there's there's a whole slew of reasons why why that was. Um, but when I when I did get up there, it was uh, it, it went quickly after that. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the uh, that amount twenty five hundred a week, and you could say two thousand, three thousand, four thousand. When you when you're hitting multiple thousands per week in profit. I think that's when you, that's when you can say, all right, I, I'm making it, I'm succeeding. I'm doing something right here. Um, and I, I think if you're looking at this from a hiring standpoint, look at some of the larger companies out there, they have hiring classes of, you know, 30, 40, 50 reps. And after six months, they're, they're cutting people who aren't at a certain level yet, right? They, they haven't made it. They're not going to make it. Um, but I think usually what I see is if if six months in, I think at that point, whether or not they're at 2,500, you're going to know if they're going to make it or not. 
And I think usually within like 12 weeks, you're probably going to know if they're going to make it or not. Um, so that's my take on it. And I usually see like, here's what I see too with agents. So let's say someone's a, their, their first time being 1099. They come from a W2 background and they've never had to work on their own. Um, they have to be their own boss. They've got to manage their own time and make their own calls. No one's breathing down their neck. If usually if like six weeks goes by and they're not transitioning customers over, getting them set up, I know that at that point, you're not going to make it. Like you were overconfident. These customers aren't coming over. You can't manage yourself. It's just, it's time to cut ties, but it's not, we don't have that first conversation six weeks in there's constant communication throughout that process, right? How are things going? Is there anything that I could be doing to help you out? Is everything going as planned? What isn't going as planned? And you kind of coach them along the way based on what you've seen in other situations. So, and that's it, right? That's the bigger picture. You need a good mentor there. You need not a manager. You need like a mentor, you need a leader, or you need a coach, somebody that is helping sharpen those skill sets for that person, right? If they can hold up and do the activity and deal with the rejection and they still have that energy every day, everything else should be able to be really kind of, I don't know, cultivated, I guess, from that manager, that leader, that coach they're working with. Absolutely. Well, good stuff. Good questions. Kevin Hill. I love it. Good having you on today. Any final thoughts around the horn here from anybody? It's a good episode. I I just want to say it was a fantastic time. I I enjoyed talking to, to talking to both of you guys uh it's fun i enjoy i enjoy your podcast and your your blog posts and what you guys are doing pumping out the content it's great and look forward to uh to interacting with you more on on linkedin i'll tag you because i will tag everybody especially uh you know if i'm on their podcast and if i've met them personally or virtually now uh where we all have video screens up and and it's fun i've enjoyed it immensely and um uh, yeah, I, I think it's a very important message of, of finding your niche because uh, only people who play in niches get the riches. <laughs> Usually Ben's the one that hops on with some kind of proverb, but today like Kevin Bill gave it to us. Those with the niches have the riches. Get the riches. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, hey, make sure to check out Kevin's show. Put that coffee down. It's live on Wednesdays at, what you say, noon central time? Noon uh, Eastern time. Noon Eastern time. Gotcha. Cool. And uh, carrierlist.com, your company. We're going we're gonna to put links in the show notes for both of those. Kevin, great to have you on here. Ben, Whether your you outro saying? You, Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any articles and content that we referenced on this episode. Visit us on the web at www.freight360.net. And if you'd like to learn more about a new home for your agency, contact me directly. And if you'd like to learn more about me coming out to run a free complimentary sales training for your team, check me out on LinkedIn or again at www.freight360.net.